I was trying to figure out, how do people think about nuclear weapons? What does this fiction tell us about our mentality, our attitudes? Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've been talking about your history with the word nuclear and your study of the topic from the second half of the 20th century, mainly. And moving chronologically through how the topic has been treated through the arts and literature. And we left off somewhere around the 80s, which is the advent of the Reagan era, which is a really critical time for this topic. Uh, you want to pick it up from there? Right. And this is, of course, what started my, this is the period in which my interest in writing about this subject began. Um, it was pretty grueling. You know, I prefer to do literary research on works I actually like. <laughs> and um, I compared this, uh, reading these hundreds and hundreds of grisly, often terribly written books to uh, trying to make it through a free fire zone by ducking down, <laughs> getting through it as fast as possible. Yeah. The, the other metaphor I used was uh, sampling polluted water for toxic sludge. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was important work, and, and when I'd done an awful lot of it and gotten pretty thoroughly sick of it, I still just gritted my teeth and, and kept going until I could get it pretty much completed into the era, uh, not long after 1984 when the book was supposed to end, because I had a publisher at that time. And in the next couple of years, the uh, interest in the whole thing trailed off as the Soviet Union seemed less and less threatening. Of course, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, it vanished almost entirely. But I thought I'd start here, and I don't want to retrace the whole history of how I got involved in it and tell all the stories about the many, many, many novels and stories and plays that came out. And there was also a scholar in Australia, uh, Mick Broderick, who was doing the same thing at the same time with movies and published a book about it, and we were in correspondence with each other. But uh, I'd like to just read the part of the introductory paragraphs from my book in chapter one, and it starts with an epigraph from Brian Aldiss, I mentioned before, from his Heliconia Winter. Throughout the ages, and long before the invention and development of nuclear weapons, there had been those who prophesied that the world would end because of man's wickedness. Such prophecies were always believed, no matter how many times they had proved wrong in the past. There was a wish for, as well as, a fear of punishment. Once nuclear weapons were invented, the prophecies gained plausibility, although now they were couched in lay terms rather than religious ones. Evidence, the more convincing, because governments tried to suppress it, proved that the world could be ended at the touch of a button. And then I go on my own voice. On the island of Iniwetok, site of the atomic bomb tests of 1947-52, a man named Traven walks among the concrete blocks, searching for something he fears to find. He is haunted by memories of the bombing runs against Japan 
and by the deaths of his wife and son in an automobile accident for which he blames himself. He has sought out these Sams, fused by the weapons tests as the setting for his expiation, blending his guilt with the larger guilt of humanity in creating the possibility of nuclear war. He wanders through the blocks as through a maze, returning constantly to the center, finding himself there when the sun was at zenith on any we talk, the thermonuclear noon. Its ruined appearance and the associations of the island with the period of the Cold War, what Traven had christened the pre-third, were profoundly depressing, and Auschwitz of the soul, whose mausoleums contained the mass graves of the still undead. In his classic parable for the atomic age, The Terminal Beach, 1964, J.G. Ballard uses the imagery of nuclear war to summon feelings of guilt, despair, emptiness, and self-annihilation. The protagonists of Ballard's stories and novels are often fascinated by impending doom, mesmerized by the end of time, but Traven's quest is a more thoughtful one, an attempt to reconcile his personal guilt with that of the culture of which he is a product expiating in advance the guilt of destroying the human race in a thermonuclear holocaust. The freezing of time, a constantly recurring theme in Ballard's work, is expressed in the terminal beach by a fascination with the melted silica which bears the imprint of the old explosions. Quote, the series of weapons tests had fused the sand in layers and the pseudo-geological strata condensed the brief epochs, microseconds in duration, of thermonuclear time. Many authors have pondered the significance of the bomb in the years since 1945. World War III, the nuclear holocaust, has been fought over and over in the pages of books and magazines. In a way, these are war stories, but nuclear war is different from earlier wars in ways that affect its depiction in fiction. First, it is short. Although some of our fiction depicts lengthy atomic warfare, most of it assumes the war will be over in minutes or hours at most. Concepts familiar from other wars become irrelevant. Conscription, the noble sacrifice of soldiers to defend loved ones at home, the civilian support of the war effort. Indeed, the distinction between civilian and military is largely erased, except that the military personnel most directly engaged in conducting the war are the most sheltered, and innocent civilians the most likely casualties. In Helen Clarkson's The Last Day, a novel of the day after tomorrow, one character comments, in the old days, men-at-arms were always sustained through the immoral act of killing by the thought that they were not fighting for themselves, but for their children. Today, men ask their children to die for them. So this is what thoughtful writers were thinking about nuclear war. But most fiction continued to refrain from detailed accounts of human suffering. Uh, the exception, and in my opinion, the best novel ever written about nuclear war is Ibuse Masuji's Black Rain, written in 1965, which is a novel about Hiroshima. He didn't actually go through the war himself, so he knew people who had, and uh, he decided to write a very vivid description from the Japanese perspective of their experience of having been bombed. And I'll just read a bit of what I had to say about that novel. The destruction, the wounds, and the effects of radiation disease are depicted in minute detail. A host of powerful images is presented. Telephone poles burn like candles. 
Lead from melted power lines has left a trail of silver droplets. A baby girl plays with her dead mother's breasts. The main psychological reaction of the victims is shock. Some try to go on about their business as usual, absurdly attempting, for instance, to report to offices which have been vaporized. The traditional modesty of Japanese women prevents many of them from seeking medical attention, as this example highlights. At one sundry goods store this side of Mitaki Station on the Kobe line, they had found a woman who had gone in unnoticed and died in one of their closets. When the owner of the store dragged the body out, he found that the garment it was wearing was his daughter's best summer kimono. Scandalized, he had torn the best kimono off the body, only to find that it had no underwear on underneath. She must have been burned out of her home and fled all the way there, naked, yet still, being a young woman, sought something to hide her nakedness, even before she sought water yeah. or food. But it Busi does... Uh, by the way, family names come first in Japanese names, and you can find his book also under Masuji Ibuse as well as Ibuse Matsuji, um, is to concentrate on individuals and really give their feelings and their immediate experiences in a vivid way that is extremely rare. And of course, it has the authenticity based on research and conversation with actual survivors. Black Rain was made into a movie, which unfortunately was released the same year as another movie named Black Rain, which was about gangsters in Japan and completely obliterated all knowledge of this one. The black rain here is the radioactive dust and the rain that fell and spattered on people and further contaminated. There are all kinds of ways that fiction writers avoid really dealing with the human experience of nuclear war. One of the oldest and most persistent is the tradition of mutant fiction, the idea of radiation. Okay, radiation can make you evolve in various ways, maybe get superpowers. You already find that before Hiroshima, and um, there's a whole section in my book on this. And of course, everybody's familiar now with Spider-Man, having gotten his powers from a radioactive spider. This is totally absurd, of course, uh, that you're much more likely to have tremendous disabilities imposed by radiation exposure than any added abilities. But it underlines how escapist our thinking tends to be about nuclear weapons. There's also the opposite uh, sort of approach, you know, the sort of the Mad Max kinds of things, in which the violent struggle after the war is the focus. And so you sort of ignore the war and the war functions to get the authorities out of the way so that chaos can reign and the hero can battle the bad guys. Uh, Mad Max, by the way, uh, is not uh, definitely about nuclear war. It belongs to a large category of post-Holocaust settings which assume that the civilization has collapsed, but People often assume that these are about nuclear war. I was always getting books recommended to me. Oh, you got to read this one. It's definitely about nuclear war. I'd read it. And nope, no nuclear bombs. Just a lot of people struggling to survive. And we don't know what caused civilization to collapse. It's assumed that the dystopian future follows a nuclear annihilation. Right. Uh, it's gotten to that point. It did for a while in the 80s and early 90s. Now what's happened is that the the nuclear theme has faded away a lot and uh, in young adult fiction especially, uh, things like The Hunger Games and so on. Um, Post-apocalyptic fiction has gotten tremendously important and it's an exception when 
uh, people think of it in nuclear terms. But for that period in the 80s and 90s, um, that was very much the case. Part of the problem of writing a novel actually about a nuclear war that's not going to be just a, a thriller that takes you up to the moment when it is averted is that it's too short. There's not time to tell the story of it. And so writers who want to tell about a struggle will tell about a struggle of people with each other. Now occasionally this has Russians invading the United States and Americans fighting them, but more often than not it's Americans fighting each other. And it becomes uh, a sort of what I came to call a radioactive Rambo novels. And I wrote a whole separate article about that that's been published. Uh, dozens and dozens of them. Um, men's fiction, starting with Jerry A. Hearns, The Survivalist. And these are escapist stories uh, about, uh, that really turn it into a kind of fun. It's about survivalism, uh, the fantasy of survivalism. The cops are gone, the military is gone, but the guy with plenty of guns and a motorcycle or you know, whatever his weapons of choice are, can go out and slaughter the bad guys and you get lots of rape and pillage and um, children lying in ditches and stuff. Instead of the watching the children die slowly of radiation that we got in Judith Merrill's novel, for instance, the children are victims just to make it more horrifying and they're kind of just decorations sprinkled around the landscape as set dressing. Um, I found these novels so appalling that after having read, I don't know, maybe three dozen of them, I finally gave up and just started listing them and saying, yep, yet another one from these guys. Every once in a while, I hear from somebody who's a fan of this kind of thing, who is interested in my book because they're finding more books to read of that kind. And the comment that I've heard more than once of people like this who contact me is my ex-wife uh, used to really hate these. <laughs> <laughs> Think silently to myself, yeah, well, I can see why. These are not contacts that I particularly welcome or warm to. There is another exception which is not well known, which is maybe the only really carefully detailed moment-by-moment -moment depiction of a nuclear attack. And that's Philip Wiley. Philip Wiley was kind of obsessed with this. He became a great advocate of uh, civil defense. And he wrote several novels uh, and nonfiction as well about the subject. And one of his books is just called Tomorrow, with an exclamation point after it, published in 1954. And so his main point of view character is out on the street, and this is the scene. There it is, he thought strangely. It was quite long, dark, but with a flare of fire at the tail end that shone palely against the winter sky. It had a place to go, he supposed, and it must be near its place. The nose end was thin and very sharp. Then, where it had been, almost overhead by that time, a light appeared capitalizes light. It was a light of such intensity that Coley could see nothing except its lightness and its expanding dimensions. He felt at the same time a strange physical sensation, just a brief start of a sensation, as if gravity had vanished and he too were a rushing thing and a prickling through his body and a heat. And he was no more. 
Wiley goes on for several pages to describe how buildings melt and then vaporize, how the light and heat of the impact rush through the city, how the fireball ignites distant objects. There's another passage. Clothing caught fire, the beggar's rags, the dowager's sables, the baby's diapers, the minister's robe. Paper in the gutter burst into flame, trees, clapboards, outdoor advertising signs, pastry behind bakery windows. In that second, it burned. The fires are then blown out by a shockwave that accompanies the blast of lethal radioactivity and the second generation of fires begins. It's really thoroughly researched. And that's just something you would think that all these people, these hundreds of authors who have written these books and stories would have sat down and read some of the easily available literature about what are the effects of a nuclear war? What takes place during one? But even they avert their gazes. People are radically incurious about this. I talked before about the tendency of people to absolutize the nuclear war, to say that it's utterly destructive of everything and want to be right in the middle of it. And a peculiar example of it is if you read um, stories, travelogues, and others about Hiroshima, where I visited to the, the shrine, um, it would say the bomb exploded in the air overhead and utterly obliterated everything under it, completely vanished everything was turned to dust. And on the next page, there'll be an illustration of this building with a dome over it, made of concrete and steel, where the dome was knocked down, but the rest of the building remains and has actually been preserved and restored as the memory is called the atomic bomb dome. And the authors and the editors are just totally unaware that there's a contradiction between saying the bomb evaporated everything, it's all gone. And here is the evidence. Look at this picture. There's this building that the bomb exploded right over that building. The contradiction is just mind-boggling. How could you do that? And it's this tendency to segregate these two things, to, to think of the bomb as absolute, but also as unthinkable in a way, as something that can't be experienced, even when you've got the evidence to look at right in front of your eyes. Well, some other things came along uh, in the 80s that had the potential to change a lot of the debate about uh, nuclear disarmament and the threat of nuclear weapons. And the first was the publication of a major article in Scientific American about electromagnetic pulse. Uh, this is something that had been known long before, that when a large bomb goes off, it can generate a pulse of electromagnetic energy that can destroy all kinds of electronic equipment. And uh, one of the things you can do, for instance, is uh, kill off most cars so they won't operate anymore, unless you had an older model car with uh, electronic parts in it. Mm -hmm. um, if your telephone system would go down, broadcasting would fail, emergency lines wouldn't work, um, and it would simply and metaphorically blow the fuses on everything, bring down the power grid. And uh, this really wasn't widely discussed. I mean, people didn't realize how big the effect could be, and the scientists didn't really get around to discussing it in a public way until 1981. And by that time, of course, the panic 
was uh, absorbed in other directions, and people didn't really pay much attention to it. 1985, Whitley Strieber and James Kanetka wrote War Day, which was a big bestseller, 1985. And it really deals with electromagnetic pulse and ray, and they essentially cause it to begin uh, the fall of civilization, and probably exaggerating somewhat the effects. But it's the only book I know that really puts EMP front and center as uh, an important thing to worry about in nuclear weapons. And the second, of course, is the theory of nuclear winter which was fully developed and became public only in 1982. And public reaction to that was kind of muted. It's just like all concerns about climate change. We're worried about the world getting too hot. Well, if you explode a lot of weapons in the atmosphere, you get the same thing happening as when uh, there have been many volcanoes in the geological past erupting. Uh, the, you get dust clouds in the atmosphere which reflect the sun's heat back and you get an ice age. Um, there is one study that was done that decided that if there was a limited exchange between um, India and Pakistan with uh, 10 or a dozen nuclear bombs, that would be enough to trigger a nuclear winter worldwide. There's a lot of dispute back and forth about how serious the threat was, but scientists generally agreed it is a threat. It's something to be concerned with. And um, anti-nuclear activists, of course, talked about it, but the general public just could not get engaged with this idea. The idea of being incinerated had a certain uh, presentness to it that just was visceral. But the idea that uh, maybe everybody will starve to death because there won't be any crops for several years, um, and that the Ice Age would return, that was not something that people have yet to come to grips with. It was interesting, I'm going to come back again to the book I keep talking about, Brian Aldous's Heliconia Winter. Aldous had started this trilogy. Now, one of the things that set Aldous apart from other science fiction writers is he generally didn't write trilogies. He would write one book and then he would go on and write a very different book. But he decided to write a long-term history of a planet with a very eccentric orbit because it orbits around two stars. And at one point in its orbit, it's getting their combined uh, heat. And then at another point, it's very far away from the main source of heat. And so the planet glazes over with an ice age. There are two intelligent species living on the planet, one of which evolved during the cold periods and can survive them, the other of which evolved during the warm periods. But they don't know about evolution, and they think of each other as alien species. They're actually genetically related, and they're in constant warfare with each other, trying to exterminate each other, whereas the best hope of their continuing their genetic line is to cooperate. Um, and so it's very much an ecological novel, and very sophisticated and beautifully written. By the way, he's the one that uh, depicted the threat of winter coming long before Game of Thrones. But um, he was ready to write the third novel. This was the novel called Heliconia Winter, in which Heliconia was kind of finally entered this period of chill. And it was that time that he became aware of nuclear winter theory. And it was too late for him to develop a plausible nuclear winter on Heliconia, because he already had the mechanism that was going to cause that winter. 
So what he does is to introduce the earth into this and indicate uh, that these people learn that uh, far off across the galaxy that this planet, which had entered a deep and permanent winter as a result of using nuclear weapons. Mm. And that quotation that I read at the beginning of this podcast um, is about that. So he incorporated this new idea into it, and it's a, a moving novel. That's the novel that he handed to me in Florida as a manuscript and asked me to read. Uh, I've mentioned this before, that most fictional nuclear wars lack any plausible political cause. You don't know, it could be pure accident, or it's caused by a crazy person. Um, you get things like uh, um, Dr. Strangelove, which is a tremendous movie, and I talk about the influences of novels on it and the novels that were based on it and so on in my book. And uh, people often immediately think of Dr. Strangelove. And I, you know, I admire Dr. Strangelove. It's a masterpiece of a movie. It's, it's brilliant. Um, but I think politically it's catastrophic because what it does is to say our leaders are madmen. We can't trust them to keep out of nuclear war. We have really no control over the military. Uh, the bombs themselves have a certain unstoppable quality. Um, annihilation is absolute. So what are you supposed to do with that knowledge? There's nothing in the movie that would suggest that you ought to go out and vote for somebody or join a petition campaign or study the possibility of a treaty or do anything useful. Uh, so as an admonitory fiction, it's apocalyptic and it encourages despair more than anything. And the fact that it's very funny, it gives it an air of sophistication that makes people feel, okay, I now face death and laughed at it. Uh, just like the many New Yorker cartoons that uh, mock death. There's one in the current issue where this guy has got a, a balloon that he's holding out on the street with a smiley face on it and death is creeped up beside him in his robe and about to stick a pin in it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it winds up to my way of thinking being escapist. I know a lot of critics would disagree with me about this. And I got uh, a certain amount of flack from the literary critical community for the way I approached this study because I was trying to figure out how do people think about nuclear weapons? What does this fiction tell us about our mentality, our attitudes? That's not a proper study of literature from a lot of people's point of view. Um, fortunately, uh, it got enough plausibility to get me promoted to full professor, which <laughs> I appreciated my colleagues for doing, but it was a, something of a challenge. There are quite a few other scholars who began writing on the same subject, but none of them with quite the, the angle that I was taking. And for several years, I edited a newsletter that reviewed and noted uh, various new books and articles that were about it and I had a whole mailing list of scholars all over the country and that whole uh, newsletter I've put up on my website as well we can make a link to that so the problem is that most of the so-called thinking that goes into thinking about nuclear war makes preventing it more difficult and makes planning for the aftermath pointless. If you're convinced that there is no way to survive, see, there's the liberals in, in general tend to think any 
thought that goes in trying to survive a nuclear war makes nuclear war more likely, and that we should think of it as think of it as unthinkable. Now, there's a paradox involved with that that makes it very very difficult indeed. Um, so, as I said, there's a lot of post-Holocaust narratives out there now. Very, very few of them have anything to say about nuclear weapons. And so, it took reality, the reality of Donald Trump sitting in this room with the people who actually control nuclear weapons and saying, hey, could I use this? And How easy would it be? And, and keep coming back to it again and again. And when that bit of knowledge burst on the public scene, it finally cracked open a little margin to talk about, hey, what about those nuclear weapons? Anyway, do we really need to do something about this? So now we've got two candidates that are saying it's one of the most serious problems facing us. We'll wait and see if they say anything else about it. I have my doubts. Mm. Well, uh, Paul, you're talking about the bomb and the arts, but of course it's not just the arts, it's how it affects us in the real world, uh, all too relevant. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.